Chapter 4 of Dog Watches at Sea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dog Watches at Sea by Stanton H. King. Chapter 4 a stowaway. Strange as it may seem, sailors who have been plundered by these land sharks, on leaving their ships will, childlike, forget the past and allow themselves to return to these vile resorts. The encouraging fact is that there are now in all large seaports clean, honest boarding houses for sailors, and that the large majority of seamen patronize them. Only a small minority of the men of the sea throw away their earnings in these dens of other days. Of late years, through the untiring efforts of philanthropic people, much good has been accomplished in eliminating from our large seaports some of the dives displaying signs as Sailor's Home, and sailors' boarding houses. Still, even at the close of this nineteenth century, there are left a few of these places whose whole aim is to rob and plunder seamen. Here they are overcharged for everything and kept plentifully supplied with the worst kind of liquor as long as their money lasts. The sailors' resort where I had bargained with the mistress to work for my board, was one of many so-called sailors' homes. After my meal of cold potatoes and beer had been finished, the boss, the title by which the boarding mistress was known, informed me what my duties were to be. I was to be up at five in the morning, shake down the fires in the barroom, the sailors' lounge room, and the kitchen, fill the stoves with coal from the pen in the yard, and sift the ashes. My immediate discharge was assured if she found any good coal among the ashes. Then, if the bartender had not come down, I was to scrub the floor of the lounge room and clean the spittoons. After giving me this list of duties, she called a lad about sixteen years old and told him to show me the small bed in the big room upstairs. The sailors in this house were bullied by two men. I was bullied by everybody, including this same boy. He, being a true son of this uncouth mortal, and knowing how readily his mother would believe what news he brought her, took every opportunity during my stay in that house to rob the seamen when they were drunk, and then accuse me of the theft. There were a few small rooms upstairs with single beds where the homeward-bound sailors slept as long as their money lasted. When that was gone, they were allowed to sleep in the large room, two men in a bed large enough for one person only. This was in hopes of an advance note paying their bills. There were seven beds in this room, not including the canvas cot 
which the boy said was my doss. Being tired, I slept soundly and heard nothing until I felt the blows coming from the fists of my boarding mistress, which quickly roused me to my feet. Curses and oaths were showered upon me. To keep warm I had slept in my clothes and shoes, so jumping from the bed I made for the stairs, followed by this infuriated creature. She was too stout to descend quickly, so before she reached the ground floor I was filling the empty hod at the coal pen. By this time her temper was somewhat cooled, and I was again instructed as to my duties and allowed to remain. For two weeks I cleaned and scrubbed and was compelled to do the dirtiest kind of work, laboring from early morning till late at night. Then I waited until the music in the saloon had ceased and the brawling dancers had retired to their haunts for the night. Although the saloon was separated from the main part of the house and seemed part of an adjoining building, yet through the door to the sailor's lounge room oaths, curses, and the noise of occasional fights could plainly be heard. In fear and trembling I would remain crouched in some dark corner until all was quiet and the doors were closed for the night. Then I would go up to my cot, which was covered with one well-worn quilt, and stretch myself under it until all the drunks had come up to roost. When all were fast asleep, and it was quiet downstairs, I would creep softly to the sailor's lounge room, and on a wooden settee by the stove remain, half awake, that I might have some work done when the fiend should come below. I will credit this woman with giving me enough food to eat, such as it was, but in return I more than compensated her by the work I did. I had only my one suit of clothes, which was receiving hard usage and becoming more soiled and filthy each day. I had heard the sailors talking about Thanksgiving Day, and the men were looking forward to it with pleasure. The morning of the eventful day dawned. My usual work had been done, and I had taken my seat to begin my breakfast. A tooting of horns, screeching yells of children on the street, and the clattering noise of horses' feet, mingled with the rumbling of carriage wheels, made me leave everything and bolt for the street. It was a carnival. Some said they were greenbacks, a puzzle which has not been solved in my mind to this day. I saw a long line of carriages filled with people dressed in some heathenish manner, shouting, blowing horns, and followed by the street urchins of lower New York, their number augmented at every turn of the carriage wheels. Without a thought or care I ran with the crowd, shouting as loudly as any boy amongst them. Occasionally the procession stopped for a moment, and then off we went again. We had reached the battery before my mind drifted back to the boarding house. Then, with a foreboding that a volley of oaths was in store for me, I made my way back. A sailor, a Swede, who had been in the house about two weeks, 
rushed at me as soon as he saw me enter. But for the ready help of a kind Irishwoman who did the cooking in the house, my poor body would have suffered severely from the savage blows aimed at me. Throwing herself between me and the Swede, she made him understand that she intended to fight my battles. I had worked hard beside this queen of the kitchen, and had gained her good will, and indeed I felt grateful for the ready aid she rendered in saving me from the half-crazed creature. Jabbering away in his broken English, I learned that, having missed his watch from his room, he had offered a reward of five dollars to any inmate of the house who would tell him where it was. Tom, the boarding mistress's son, said I had stolen it and put it between the folds of the quilt on my cot, where indeed it had been found. Of course I believed Tom the thief and loudly gave my opinion to that effect. No sooner said than the boarding mistress rushed at me, poker in hand, shouting as she applied it to my back. You call my son a thief? You do, do you? Get to hay out of this house. Running to save my life, I reached the street and kept going toward the waterfront till I felt I was far from the clutches of the evil one. Not very long ago, I visited New York City and walked along Cherry Street to see if perchance I might find this boarding house. I could not locate it. The old haunts of that part of lower New York seemed entirely changed and strange to me. The building which appeared most likely to be the house is now an ordinary tenement with a small grocer's shop on the street floor. For eight days I tramped the streets of New York, homeless and without a friend in the city. Oh, the misery of those few days! Sleeping in doorways, picking ash barrels, feeding on decayed fruit, and the refuse floating between the wharves, suffering hunger and a benumbed body, my clothes filthy, and my shoes almost worn to the uppers, I existed as a homeless street dog. On the third evening after leaving the boarding house, somewhere in the vicinity of Catherine Street, I noticed several sailors going in and coming out of a building. Each time the door opened, I could see that it was not a barroom, neither had it the appearance of a boarding house. What could it be? Should I be allowed in there? Lately, while relating this bitter experience of my boyhood to a Christian woman, she remarked, Why didn't you go to the YMCA or the Seamen's Institute? Why? Because I knew nothing of such places. Born and brought up where the church, in which people gathered once or twice a week to worship God, was the only benevolent institution, how was I to know that there were places and kind people to befriend the homeless and needy? And with whom had I associated, excepting Captain Hill, to learn that there were good people in this world who gave of what they had to help others? Personal benevolence was something unknown to me. I meekly walked in with others who were entering, 
and took a seat at a table on which a few papers and books were placed. I did not want to read. I cared more to look around, trying to form in my mind some idea of the object of this room. Texts of scripture were hung on the walls, and near where I sat was another table at which men were writing letters. Up to the time of my discharge from the fireworks factory, I had written home to my mother, hearing from her at least once a month. Seated in this room, watching the men writing their letters, my thoughts flew back to my mother, and a desire came over me to write and let her know that I was still alive. But I supposed the writing material was their own, and as I had none, and besides was too timid to speak lest I be noticed, and driven from the warmth of the place, I kept quite still and watched the faces about me as the men entered and left. I must have been seated some fifteen minutes, expecting at any time to be sent out as an intruder, when a kind-faced woman walked into the room. Coming up to where I was seated, she bade me good evening. After saying a few words to all at the table about the fine weather, she turned to me, and placing her hand on my shoulder said, My little boy, are you a Christian? I had been brought up to believe in God, and knew the church catechism and ten commandments. Every morning at home I said my prayers with my brothers and sisters at the foot of my mother's bed. I had heard that in foreign lands there were savages who knew nothing of God and were classed as heathen, but took it for granted that all people living in civilized lands were Christians. Therefore the first thought that entered my mind was that she knew all about my trouble at the boarding house and wondered if I came from some savage land. So instead of answering her question, I began to say, Tom was the thief, and to apologize for being in so filthy a condition. As I started to leave the hall, this good soul took my hand and told me to follow her. We crossed the hall and opened a door leading into some dark space. The door was closed, and for about ten seconds all sorts of wild ideas floated through my mind. The treatment I had received from people on the streets made me suspicious of everybody, and I mistrusted this well-meaning woman. Turning to me as soon as the room was lighted, she said, Do you love Jesus? I meekly answered, I do. I do not mean to convey the impression that I had any special love in my heart for him just at that time. I had been taught something of the life of Christ in the Sunday school at home. It had never occurred to me that he could have anything to do with my present troubles, so I answered regarding him as if she had said, Do you love the Queen of England? I do. She then asked me to kneel in prayer with her. Anyone entering the room would have found her kneeling beside a cane-bottomed chair, pouring out her soul to God for my redemption, and I, 
a trembling bit of humanity kneeling at the opposite side of the chair longing for an opportunity to get out of the place the whole scene appeared to me as though i were known and believing the story of the boarding-house theft in this way she would try to make me a better boy i have often wondered what this kind missionary thought of me the door of her closet was opened and quickly crossing the hall i opened the street door to continue my tramping until i could find some shelter in a doorway for the night many times i was shaken by a policeman and told to go home and without a murmur i would start on to find another doorway or alley my misery came to an end on a friday evening the eighth day away from the boarding-house with no object in view i was walking along the streets of lower new york when i noticed small flakes of something white falling from the sky i knew that this was snow though i had never seen any before i had read of snowstorms in northern countries and had seen a picture of a winter scene which had given me a vague idea of snow so for the first hour i romped and played with the falling flakes so glad was i that i had seen it i forgot my misery my fun was checked by the familiar sounds of an organ nearby and listening i heard the voices of people singing yes within a stone's throw of where i was standing i could see a church tower i drew near the door the music was a strain i knew i looked through the narrow space between the doors and saw the minister in his white surplice kneeling in his stall and heard his voice reading the prayers the same that were read in the parish church at home the whole appearance was familiar to me and with a feeling of security i entered and slipped into a seat of a vacant pew near the back of the church in that same pew separated from me by a wooden partition was an elderly lady god bless her i was so much occupied with comparing the seats and other things in this church with the parish churches in barbados and bermuda that i remember paying no attention to the sermon but the rising of the people as the minister turned and said and now to god the father brought me to my feet with the rest the closing hymn was announced and as the first verse was being sung this sweet angel of heaven moved toward the partition and smiling held out her book inviting me to share it with her if i could pen my feelings that night if i could tell the satisfaction and comfort it gave me to be in that house of prayer gladly would i do it my loving mother's face came before me home associations were near it seemed as though i stood once more by my mother's side in st james parish church i looked at the white delicate hands so near mine so clean so refined so different from those i had seen for the past three weeks i breathed once more the holy atmosphere of my child life before the close of the hymn i was sobbing as though my heart would break with a feeling of shame to be seen crying i started for the door there to be met by this christian saint without asking me a question 
she gave me her hand and in that blessed handshake took the opportunity of pressing a silver half-dollar into my palm. I do not remember thanking her. As I carry my mind back to that evening, I can see her watching me from the church door as I reach the street. Possessing a silver half-dollar, a new strength entered my being. Making my way through the falling snow, I reached a cheap lodging-house. I entered and purchased a bed for ten cents, carefully tucking away the remaining forty cents in my well-worn trousers. No words of mine can describe the wretchedness of that lodging-house. In the room where I lay were about twenty beds filled with men, whose clothes, like mine, were teeming with vermin and dirt, a place a trifle more comfortable than the gutter in the street. Still, for that night I was out of the snow, away from the kicks and cuffs of the street boys, and sheltered under a roof. I resolved that I would on the following day make one more effort to find a ship sailing for Barbados. Every day, during the eight days I had walked the streets, I had visited not only ships sailing to the West Indies, but English and German East Indiamen, ocean steamers, canal boats, tugs, and vessels of every description offering my services for my board. One captain would have taken me, as he wanted a cabin boy, but turning away said to the steward, He's too dirty looking, and to me, you won't do. Sometimes I was of service to some of the cooks, helping them clean their galley pans, and thereby earned a morsel of food. All the captains whom I asked to give me a berth on board gave me, instead, the discouraging answers, I don't want you, or you're too small. On reaching the street next morning, plowing my way through the snow, I entered a small eating house, where I paid ten cents for a cup of coffee and a piece of custard pie. Then I wended my way once more to the wharves where Trowbridge's West Indian ships were moored. At the wharf was a brigantine, on board of which the steamer doors were driving in single file a pack of mules. The animals were huddled together on the wharf near the side of the ship. Bales of hay and other things left on the wharf were covered with snow, and the ship's rigging and the furl of the sails looked as though they had been painted white. As I stood gazing at these things, and wondering how they could ever get the ship clear again, I noticed her name on the bow, though too much covered with snow to read at that distance. Drawing near, I saw in yellow letters the name Victoria. The sailors arrived, driven to the wharf in a wagon with their bags and chests. I saw them go on board, carry their things to the forecastle, and watching them shaking hands and saying good-bye to a man called Mr. White, though some, made more familiar by drink, addressed him as Dago White. Determined to find out something about the Victoria, I inquired of Mr. White where she was bound. He very kindly replied, Port of Spain, Trinidad. 
He was the first man I had met for three weeks who would answer my many inquiries without telling me I wanted to know too much and that I shouldn't ask so many questions. Finding him willing to talk, I got the cheering news that the Victoria was bound to Port of Spain to discharge her deck-load of mules and thence to Barbados to discharge her cargo. I watched my chance while everyone seemed busy casting the lines adrift from the wharf, and the captain was talking with the captain of the towboat alongside his ship. I jumped on the rail of the vessel between the shrouds of the fore-rigging and made my way over the mule pen down into the forecastle. Once in, I saw in a top bunk a large sailor's clothes bag. Springing up into the bunk, I lay down between the bag and the bulkhead of the forecastle. My heart thumping and beating, I remained there for fully three hours. The galley was a small space, a part of this forward house divided off for such use. I could hear the cook coming and going, only the partition separating him from me. At times I thought he was in the forecastle, so distinct were the sounds of his rustling and moving of pots and pans. I felt the motion of the brig as the towboat hauled her astern, the noise of the men on deck clearing up and getting things secured, the setting of the topsails, and at last the welcome hee-hawing of the men as hand over hand they got in the tow-line. Then the soft rolling of the ship speeding on before a fair northerly wind told me I was at sea again. At noon the men came below to dinner. The sailor's pot, pan, and spoon were in his bag. He moved it and jumped back when he saw a form and heard me scream. Word was taken to the captain that a stowaway was forward. The mate's voice shouting down, Send that fellow on deck, brought me once more up into the free open air of heaven. I could see the highlands of the Jersey coast. Vessels of all kinds were going into New York and coming out. I was in a state of both happiness and fear as I walked aft with the mate. Happy because I left behind me recollections of misery, fearful because of the reception that awaited me aft. End of chapter 4